He said, oh my God. And he was looking at the shows. And he said, where did you fix on it? And I said, well, it's, my, it's more like a miracle. So just keep it like that. <laughs> Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Evanston, Alberta, or Amiskwichi Muskaigan, on Treaty 6 territory. Each episode, we take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This episode, back to Richie. The Richie Community League invited us back for a second year to do a walking tour of their Southside neighborhood based on questions from people who live there. Heads up, the podcast version of this is a mashup of two tours that we did that day. I wanted to pick the best parts from the two tours. So imagine that you're taking a walking tour today in a parallel universe where everything turned out perfectly. It starts inside the Ritchie Community League's big hall, getting some shelter from drizzling rain. So... We have a couple stops we're going to make today. Uh, We are going to be going to learn about the shoemakers in the neighborhood. We're going to learn a little bit about um, someone's home. She was specifically curious about the heritage of her own home. And we'll learn a little bit about the industrial heritage of uh, what you might know as West Ritchie, the blacksmith shop type area, and um, how it came to be that there are those Quonset um, hut style buildings there. Uh, And... Yeah, uh, we may or may not walk all the way to that industrial part. If it's like looking kind of crappy outside, we'll just loop back to the community league and come back here to do the last part. Um, so uh, first off, uh, we're going to be led by Karen Wall's question. Hi, Karen. Uh, she was curious, how is it possible that this one neighborhood of Ritchie supports two independent shoemakers in 2018? So let's walk to Wallace Shoemaking to find out. So we walked over to the Ritchie strip mall, past some of the construction barricades where they're giving it a facelift, and we stopped at a glass storefront with a sign that said, Wallace Shoemaking. I'll talk about the question and about um, sort of some of the context that I learned. Um, why, don't we, why don't we ask Karen to share her question with us? Karen Wall, everybody. Well, this question, uh, it's so cursed me living around here because um, why, well, as Chris said, why is there a cobbler, an old-fashioned cobbler here in Ritchie and another one in Hazel Dean, only several blocks away at a time when most of us just throw our shoes out and buy new ones. And uh, so I just became intrigued by that. And there are various other little businesses around here that have been here forever, too, that you think would have come and gone as they do in other neighborhoods. So that was it. Thank you for your question, Karen. I feel like in the interest of full disclosure, I should say Karen used to be on the Edmonton Heritage Council and also she just wrote a paper about the historian laureate position, which was very interesting. I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, now you get to be inside the research. Um, Oh, well. Okay. Um, so the other shoe store um, that Karen mentioned is Lecky Shoe Repair. So 
Uh, it's true there are two within 10 blocks of each other. Um, Wallace shoemaking here on 76th Ave, and then um, Leckie pretty close. Um, so Leckie Shoe Repair is currently run by Bill Chorqua, who is the cousin of the original Leckie. Apparently he often gets asked if he is Bill Leckie, so the answer is no. He is not technically a Leckie, but he is in the family. Um, and uh, so his theory basically was that the reason why his business has been able to stick around is that the, his, he's in a good location, kind of. He's, the strip mall has a mix of businesses. Um, there's a nice bakery there um, that sells like German baking, um, although it's run by uh, someone who's originally from China and she studied chemistry. Um, and her name is Lucy Liu, which is kind of cool. Not spelled the same way, but Lucy Liu. Um, and there's a restaurant, The Red Goose. and I, So Bill thought the mix of businesses helps. They kind of mutually reinforce each other. Also, he thinks the fact that they have a good landlord um, is part of the reason. It's affordable for him to stick around. Um, but he did say one long-term uh, challenge is that they, uh, there aren't many people apprenticing in shoemaking. Um, for context, uh, in 1978, in the Henderson's directory, which is a wonderful... Um, uh, kind of like phone directory slash backwards address directory. Um, you can see the number of listings there are for shoe dealers and shoe repairers in 1978. There were a lot. Um, according to Bill and Mike Wallace, who runs the shop we're standing in front of, um, there are fewer than a dozen independent shoemakers in Edmonton today. Um, maybe as few as five. I don't know the exact number, but it does, definitely has declined a lot. Um, and part of it seems to be not many people coming in to apprentice. And also, honestly, it seems like the people who are doing it don't have much time to teach apprentices either. Um, Bill seemed uh, quite busy when I came in, and it sounds like Mike is like constantly has his hands full as well. Um, so who we're about to meet is Mike Wallace, who runs this place, Wallace Shoemaking. He's a fascinating guy, and uh, he was kind enough to um, come twice on a Sunday. We really appreciate it, thank you. Um, so uh, we're gonna go inside, we're gonna learn about how he came to be a shoemaker, and we're gonna see some stuff. So Mike, our question was generated by Karen here. Have you ever met Karen and, and Mike? We've been in and out, my husband comes here all the time. Oh, cool. Nice, well I'm, I'm glad we were able to formally bring you together. Um, so Mike Wallace uh, runs Wallace Shoes, and he has just a fascinating life story of how he became a shoemaker and came to uh, run this business. Um, so Mike, can we can we start in Jamaica in the in the seventies uh, okay. as a teenager? Oh, but tell, then <laughs> tell me about your dad's uh, business. Okay, my dad he used to work for himself of a little small not really a business him just work at home and um, i mean i was born in kingston that's the capital of jamaica so at the age of about um nine years old he came to his parish and that is port Antonio. and then he started to work with a few guys and then he just leave and start working at home and that's where i pick up the trade but before that as my mom would say I was doing this thing probably even before I was born. Because <laughs> uh, she said, I used to um, just come in the place, you know, as a little baby boy, and try to make slippers from cardboard and paper. So from that day, they said they know that I was going to take the trade. And 
and it was a, pl a pair of platform shoes that that oh, that yeah. clarified things for you, hey? Yeah, yeah. At the age of about um, 13, 14, in the seventies, that that was the days when um, big heel and platform barefoot pants was wearing, and my father didn't decide to make one for me, so I decided to make a platform shoe for myself. Did he think they were too extravagant, or? Yeah, he said it takes too much time and he doesn't have that time and takes money and all. And this is like big disco heel type? Yeah, like uh, at those days I didn't want the, the extra like a two inches platform. It's more like a four inches heel and an inch and a half platform. So I decided to make one for myself and my father chipped in and helped me with it. And it turned out to be a success. Yeah, it was a... December, close to Christmas, and I needed one of those things to dress up to go out for Christmas. So when I went out, my friends then was asking me, where you get that boots, where you get that shoes to buy? And I said, no, I make it. Father and I make it. And they, they just couldn't, couldn't believe. And from there, when I went to school um, during the summer, I, I make a, a school shoes for myself. And one of my classmates said to me, Hey, Wallace, I like that shoes. Where you get it? And I said, I, I make it. And he said, no, you're not serious. And then he went and tell his mom that he saw his friend wearing a boots, you know, like low um, ankle boots. And he said he wants one just like that. So the mom said, must find out how much I would charge to make it. And I told him, and he went and get some deposit, and I took his measurement and my... My school book, you know, the drawing book, them, a little bigish. Took his, took his measurement and went and built the shoes and gave it to him and get my money. What did he think? It was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it's like it's good mash. <clears throat> yeah. Good mash. Yeah, yeah. Good mash. All right. Yeah. So, so then there was, uh, n not too long after that, there was a, a small factory making firefighter boots. Is that right? Yes, 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 so, yes. So tell us about this, that. This guy came from the state. He was a Jamaican. So he decided he's going to start up a, a little factory. He got a contract to make some fireman boots. And he was doing it, and they needed another person in the shoe factory to help because they were running behind time. My father was working for them, and he recommended that he had a son that can do these things too. And they laughed at him and said, no, no, Wallace, that little boy I saw you with riding on the bicycle. And he said, yeah. And one of the guys said to him, the man said to him, so why don't we um, make his father bring him in and we see what he can do. So my father sent for me the same day and I went and he's, he said I should go inside there, and I went inside, and the guy gave me um, an old shoes and said if I can take the shoes apart and put it back together, then they know I'm good enough. And I did it, and as I said, the rest is history. My father and I was working, and one Friday evening we were going home, and he said to me, Michael, can we also get paid um, weekly? And he said, Michael, how much, how much did you work this week? And I, when I told him, he said, my God, I only make $1 over you. 
<laughs> you were how old? Huh? You were how old? Fifth, 14, 14. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. school was on um, summer holiday. So I worked there for the two months. And so a cobbler was born. Yeah. Yeah. So you moved to Canada in the 90s? Yeah, 94, after December. Okay, so tell us about how this business came to you. Okay, um, my wife, but at that time was my girlfriend, she came to Canada on the nanny program, and she sent for me, I come, and we get married. And after I get married, then I was um, looking for jobs, couldn't find any. And she said to me that uh, uh, there's a, a shoe repair place at Southgate Mall. I should go there and try and get, see if I can get a job there. I worked for him for a year and six months. I asked him for a raise because there's a lot of shoes that he was, he used to turn back. And I tell him, no, take them. He and said I, they were too difficult. Yeah, yeah. So I fixed them and he was so delighted. His business, boom. I asked him for a raise, and he said, no, you cannot give me a raise. You can't give me more hours. I said, no, I don't want more hours. I just want a raise. <laughs> and I went to see if I can get another job, and I went downtown. There was a shoe repair place underneath half Jasper there, underground. Oh, yeah, in the LRT station there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I went there, and the guy said to me that, no, don't look for a job. Try and see if you can get a business for yourself. And that's when I go home and talk to my wife. And she said, so where are you going to get money to buy that place? I said, I don't know. But anyway, she come up with some money. And there was a old man over in Parkland, back over there. And he was about to give up his business. So he have, he make me an offer and I went to my wife, I get half of the money. I took it to him and he said, um, if I can, if I, I asked him if I could give him this and then pay him the rest later did. He said, no, just give me what you got and take the business, because he want to get out. And I run over there for six years and then I came here. So I'm here uh, about 14, 15 years now. And when we talked earlier, one of the most interesting things you said to me is like how often people underestimate you. Um, like you mentioned the, the guy who bought the shoes that were too big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. Okay. Okay. There's a guy, he bought a shoes. It was a little bit big for him. He loved the shoes and he couldn't send it back. So he was asking around if anybody could um, take it down to fit his size. Some Shrupier guys would say, um, put some insole in it. When he put the insole in it, it fills it up so his foot couldn't keep into the eel. So I, he brought it to me and he said, um, telling me the story. And I said, okay, I can make it fit you. And he said, how? Oh. I said, no, I'm not going to tell you that. Just <laughs> leave it here and I tell him how much it's going to cost him. And he said, well, he doesn't care how much it costs as long as when he gets it, it doesn't look like it was tampered. And I said, that's no big deal. And I took it apart and altered it up, put it back together. And when he comes, it fit him. So he went, he said, oh my God. And he was looking at the shoes. And he said, where did you fix on it? 
And I said, well, it's, my, it's more like a miracle, so just keep it like that. <laughs> <laughs> and he went to a friend of his and showed the, the shoes to the friend. I believe he was, I believe he bought the shoes from the friend. Too. And the friend said to him, no, he didn't do anything to this shoes. All he, he did is um, get you a different shoes, <laughs> same style. And he phoned me and said, my friend said he didn't do anything. So I said, I said, is your friend a shoemaker? And he said, no, he works in the shoe industry for over 20 years, so he have experience. I said, well, if he don't have any experience in making a shoes, then he can't talk to me. So I was mad at that, because that is a diss for me, you know, it's underrated me that I, I couldn't fix this thing. Yeah. And even when I was working at Southgate, a guy brought in a shoes and the Korean guy gave me the shoes and the guy said to him, why are you giving him my shoes? Does he know what he's doing? And the Korean guy said, yeah, he's the best. And back then over in Parkland, when I bought the business from the white guy, and a woman came in and was asking for the guy. I said, no, I'm the new owner now. And she said, you can fix shoes? As if, because most of um, people, especially in Canada here, <clears throat> that, that I know of, sometimes them look at a black man as some little Africans in, in the way back where they used to just run barefoot. So they doesn't know that we can make shoes, <laughs> you know? And that's how they look at an ordinary black man. I, part of the question that brought us to your shop was about one of the famous um, shoemaking exercises that, that you had to go through, which I, I heard was very high pressure. Can you tell us about the Batman story? Oh. <laughs> Well, the Batman story, it was, um, the full costume was made in Canada. The, those guys in, um, over in Capilana, Mascot International, they get the contract to build the whole stuff, everything. And they wanted everything to build in Canada. They could not find a shoemaker to build the boots. Nobody would take up the job. So the guy phoned me and asked me if I can. This is based on Christian Bale's shoes from Batman Begins, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just to clarify. Yeah. Which yeah. Batman? Yeah. So they even Mike Wallace, maker of Batman shoes. Yeah. <laughs> they even invited you. They invited you to the premiere of the when the movie just um, released over in um, that movie theater there. Took me for dinner over there. And this is the, the joke of the story. It was one of those um, restaurants where they use um, chopstick. And I went there, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even realize I could ask for a fuck. <laughs> so Karen's question was, like the, the kind of start of this all off is, how is it possible to run a cobbler in 2018 and, and like, keep in business when so many others have had to leave the industry. Well, is that, is that right, Karen? <laughs> Two cobblers in one neighborhood, even, yes. Well, I can do what most guys cannot do. 
So that's why I'm still in business. Because as a black man, a white person, and no disrespect to you guys, will prefer to give the white guy issues to fix. But sometimes they go to the white guy or the, the Korean, whatever, and give it to them, and they said, no, this cannot fix. So then they bring it to me. So you succeed kind of by blowing away people's expectations. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, well, round of applause. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Really thank it. you to guys too. Yes, Karen, do you feel satisfied? Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To be continued in a moment, but first, a message about our network. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you? Okay, how are you? Good. Are you near a computer? No, I'm with Daisy in her car. Oh. She says hi. Hi, Daisy. Okay, when you, hi, when you get near a computer, can you, yes. can you fill out the survey for my podcast network sure are you gonna send me a link sure i'll send you a link also okay. can i use this conversation for my podcast no <laughs> please <laughs> what conversation we didn't have a conversation this phone call this very phone call why would i want to do that why would what did i say that was even worth publishing um you're my mom and that's adorable yeah, if you publish that, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. The things I do for you. I love you. Love you too. Bye, Daisy. Bye, Daisy. Bye. Bye, Mom. If you, like my mom, are a devoted listener of Let's Find Out or any of the other podcasts in the Alberta Podcast Network, head to albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey and please fill out the super quick survey about what you've been listening to, what you like. It's quick and it really helps a lot with figuring out who is actually listening out there. That survey is only up till the end of June, so get on it. Let's Find Out is also brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation, makers of the Well Endowed Podcast. In their latest episode, they chat with a couple of superpowered athletes, including Nordic skier Brian McKeever, who was flag bearer at the Paralympic Games in Pyeongchang this year. I learned that apparently you are not allowed to ride the flag during the procession into the stadium. It's actually a really thoughtful interview about what it takes to make a goal for yourself and how to kind of reset your expectations for what your life is going to be like. I'm not really a sports guy, and I enjoyed this episode. Check it out on the wellendowedpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app. All right, back to the walk. So our next question, the question asker is actually hidden in this very crowd. Nicole Anderson was curious if we could learn more about her house, which is on 79th Ave. Hi, Nicole. Hi. <laughs> Nicole, would you mind leading the way? Sure. Okay. Let's walk around the corner. Is that a good spot for you? Yes, that is a good spot. So, hi, Nicole. Hello. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, my name's Nicole Anderson, and I am a relatively new resident of Ritchie. And uh, I, I hope it's okay if we say your address, because sure. it, it's like so much a part of the story. Yep. Um, so we're here at 9613 79th Ave. Um, we're just a couple blocks away from the shoe repair place. 
And Nicole reached out uh, because she knew that her house was old and she wanted to learn more about that. Um, can you tell me what you had discovered before you reached out to me? So I had spent a little bit of time around trying to hunt around the uh, online archives. I couldn't really find anything, but I did come across the Hendersons. Is that what it's called? The Hendersons um, directories. books, directories, I guess they are, yeah. Um, and was able to look up the history of the property in the 30s, I think was the latest or the earliest I found, and was able to find the name of the person who had lived here. But it took quite a while to find that information. And so I kind of stopped. And then when I heard that the Richie, Richie History Walk was coming on, I thought, hey, I might ask somebody who knows how to look this stuff up, how you do so. <laughs> so you had the name Dame. Yep. Um, or Dom, not quite, I'm still not quite sure how to pronounce yeah. that, um, but that name will come up again. <laughs> and um, you had a date that you had heard that the house was built in. 1924. 1924. Yeah. Um, okay, and uh, we're gonna walk uh, into the house, and I think we can fit everybody into the living room, Probably, right? Yeah. Or sorry, the dining room? Yeah. yeah. And then we're gonna talk about some additional digging. And do you, are you able to show at least like a fragment of the, oh no, I got a picture of your archeological excavation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, can you tell tell them about your um, how you learned about the different layers of the house? Uh, so we had to replace a door in the back, and when we took out the door and the door frame, we realized that all of this house siding has nothing's been removed over the last hundred years. It's just been added on top. So we found four outer layers, including a board and batten layer, a cedar shake layer, and then two stucco layers. <laughs> on top of a um, plaster, I forget what you call that, the plaster and the wood boards. Wood, uh, plaster and lathe. Plaster and lathe, yeah. yeah, plaster and lathe walls, so. I, I just love that, you know, like, you can learn about, like, the earth by, via, like, layers of soil. <laughs> um, uh, Nicole and her partner were able to learn a little bit about their house just by the layers of house. <laughs> <laughs> it's really well insulated, I'll say that. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let, let's, uh, let's journey in. inside. Yeah. So, um, one of the places we started uh, was trying to look at aerial photographs. So, because you were curious about pictures of the place, right? So, the City of Edmonton Archives has aerial photographs for many years of city history. Um, the first one I was able to find with the house it was 1924, um, so it was at least around as, as early as you thought it was, 1924. That little dot there <laughs> is uh, this house, 9613, 79th Ave. On this map, you can see Edmonton south of this neighborhood was a lot of farm. It was um, much more agricultural at that time. Um, you can also see the Gainers plant, the meatpacking plant nearby. There's Mill Creek, there's the bridge um, across 82nd Ave, and then the, the rail yards there. So this is 1924, so it definitely was around at least as long as he thought it was. Um, okay, so for context, what was going on in 1924-ish? What, what led up to this, this time? Um, well, not too long before that was the signing of Treaty 6, um, which is the, the treaty that sort of binds all of our relationships between settlers and indigenous folks on this particular bit of land. Um, the river lots system had been 
created and then subdivided um, by this point, where uh, lots of Métis families and other settler families um, had these narrow lots um, coming back from the North Saskatchewan River. Also, pretty recently, um, the Pappas Chase Band had been granted a reserve by signing on to Treaty 6 and then been forced out of that reserve. Um, this land is not specifically on the Pappas Chase Reserve, but it does influence a lot of what brought people to this area. Uh, not too long before this period, Edmonton and Strathcona had amalgamated two. You may know that they were separate cities uh, for a time. So in 1912, they amalgamated, um, which uh, actually was briefly terrible for Strathcona. Um, there was a, a depression in land and wheat prices, increase in taxes, and an economic slump on the south side. So that part is important. Just You may have noticed, like, when you walk through a street in Ritchie, there are lots of houses and there, there are lots of different styles. And part of the reason for that is that there wasn't a big economic rush um, to build houses all at one time, not like a subdivision today where they would have been all, all built in the same exact style. So you'll, you'll see houses built from many different periods because there wasn't exactly a big pressure to move in all at once. Um, World War I um, had just happened as well, and the Spanish flu had also hit. So Edmonton wasn't... Um, and, and specifically, this part of Edmonton wasn't doing super hot um, <laughs> around 1924. Um, so this uh, neighborhood was one where the, the type of people who would have bought a plot of land and put up a house here would have been like laborers, not with a lot of money necessarily um, kicking around. So n not huge houses, kind of modest homes. And this is a, a two-story house. Is it one, one and a half? Is one, that and a half. one and a half story, and a half story. house. Okay. Um, so, additional digging through the City of Edmonton archives yielded some pretty interesting stuff. Um, the 2009 heritage inventory that was done for this neighborhood um, calls this housing style pretty typical for the time, one to one and a half story homes. Um, this t style of home is called vernacular, which I didn't really know what that meant until I did this research. Basically, it means, hey, we gathered some materials from what was around, um, and we built in the style of what we could build at this time. Um, and clapboard uh, cladding was pretty typical too. So if you remember the stratigraphic photo of, of looking through the layers of the house, um, that means just like those like layers of wood on the exterior of the house. That's pretty typical for this neighborhood. So when I started with your information, 1924 and the name Dame, uh, the first places I looked were the Henderson's directories as well. Um, there are more of them at the City of Edmonton archives than there are online. So I. I, was, I thought, okay, great, I'll flip through them in person. And also I tried to look for uh, photos, because it seemed like you're interested in photos of the house. But I was confused um, very quickly, because um, I, I saw the name Dame. There was a George Dame listed that's living at this house as a carpenter. And I got curious, like, where did you, where, what neighborhood did George live in before? Where, where, where was he coming from when he built this house? And I looked a little bit farther back, and there was an entry for this house as early as 1917. Um, and then I found another mystery, which was that George disappeared from the Hendersons in 1941, um, and a Pierre G. Dame appears and takes his place, also a carpenter, and then Pierre instantly retires. Um, so I, I was curious, like, what the heck is going on with that? Was it like a relative? Um, and I also found photos and hockey records for another George Dame, but he seemed too young to be the George and the Hendersons from that, that period you were looking at when we thought the house was built. So this is the... The picture I found um, of the George Dame uh, who played hockey in the 1920s. Um, you can see he was playing defense here. Um, and it's also said this picture 
was donated by someone named Beatrice McLeod. So I was like, I wonder who's Beatrice. This must be a different George. What the heck is he doing in my way? Um, so what cracked the case was two wonderful archivists at the City of Empton Archives, Kim Christie Milley and Tim O'Grady, um, who dug online and found the 1916 census. Um, and they found some entries that I, I think added, shed some light on all this. Um, so the 1916 census shows George Dame and a kid named Georgie. So there were two Georges. Um, and they lived in Hazeldean in 1916, so not too far south of here. Um, and it shows a wife named, in this census, it's recorded as Rosianna. In other records, I've seen her name as Rosanna. Um, and they had kids that were mainly born in the U.S. They immigrated in 1909, according to this census, and uh, it says they were all Francophone, too, which is kind of interesting. Um, another cool thing that uh, Tim and Christy at the archives found was a gravestone for a Pierre-George dame. So it's possible that because they were a Francophone family, Pierre-Georges dame, uh, maybe uh, didn't want to go by the more French-sounding name. Um, so right up until like the year before his retirement, it seems like he went by George, and then he switched for whatever reason late in his life uh, to going by Pierre. Um, so that, that gravestone um, is from 1953. Um, they also found this family on the 1921 census, and I only brought it to show you that uh, no record is perfect. Um, in this 1921 census, um, I, I'm pretty sure one of their kids' names is spelt wrong. And also, there's a transcription done of the census this year where Pierre becomes Peter G. Dam, and also Rosanna becomes Broenka. Uh, so I think it was just dense handwriting. I, I only brought it along to show you, like, don't always rely on the transcription <laughs> of what you find of an original record. <laughs> They're not always perfect. Um, and then another wonderful archivist, Mary Beth Plennert, helped me find uh, Pierre George's obituary. Because um, we knew that there was an obituary in 1953 that appeared. I, I think we knew there was an obituary because of the gravestone site. Um, so I tried looking through the microfilm. Tried rolling through. I don't know if you've ever rolled through microfilm, but you can get nauseous like rolling through. So I went through many uh, pages of the Empton Journal, and then I got to that page, and it was obscured by a black smear on the film itself. Um, so it was like unfixable. There was no uh, way to read it on the microfilm. And I, I asked the archivist there that day, Mary Beth Plenner, hey, is there any other way that I could get this? Is there any chance that you have the actual like physical copy of the journal? And she said, actually, they did have a book copy of the journal from March 1953. And uh, Omar, uh, my sister, producer here, um, you keep these at the gateway too, right? The books yeah. of the paper? Yeah, they're called bound editions. So they're just huge bound copies of every single paper from that year. So yeah. Are they this big? Actually, yes. <laughs> well, they, they're only that big when you go to like the 40s or the 30s. They used to publish like ridiculously big papers. It's crazy. So the, the book that Mary Beth brought me was this, like the size of a small child. Um, and uh, when I looked inside, um, Pierre's obituary was indeed there. He's listed as uh, Pierre 
genius George Dam, uh, or maybe genius. I, I'm not sure, um, but it, it does mention his uh, his his family. So uh, it seems like his wife uh, Rosanna passed away in 1962, and. They are buried beside each other, as far as I can tell, in Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Um, so Rosanna Rose, uh, Dame or Dame, uh, his wife appears. Um, so going through the Hendersons is really fun. Um, if you go through it year by year, you can almost see how people's lives change over time. Um, you can see what people's jobs are listed as. The, the Hendersons people apparently would go door to door and they would ask you, so who lives here? <laughs> What kind of job does everybody have? Um, and they would list like who they who they said was the homeowner and who was residing there. Um, if you were a, a husband, apparently it was pretty typical for you to be listed as a homeowner. If you were a wife, you resided there. Um, so Rosanna is a, a resident of this house for a very long time. Um, but it's it's neat if you go forward in time, um, you can you can see like oh okay like when Pierre Georges passed away, then um, Rosanna is listed as the the homeowner now. And she was until she passed away in 1962. And then their kid, George, the hockey player guy, moved in with his wife, Louise. Um, so George was listed previous to this as a pipe fitter at the Hotel McDonald. And his wife, uh, Louise, was listed as um, a switchboard operator at the Royal George Hotel downtown. And our hockey player, George Jr., also shows up. Um, because he got into the Edmonton Sports Hall of Fame in 1982. He was uh, 78 years old then, and uh, in addition to his hockey playing, he was also recognized for trap shooting and uh, for having played baseball. He apparently coached the Olympic trap shooting team. Um, so if you, if you look, if you cross-reference that like, photo from the 20s of the hockey player, George Dom, and this one, you can see like, his eye shape is pretty similar, even though these, like, that earlier photo is not super high resolution. but you want to compare George over time. Okay, and this is my favorite of this whole family. Um, they were, there was like a big family, there was a lot going on. Um, but they had another famous hockey playing son. Um, and he has what I think is one of the most wonderful names I've ever heard. Aurelia Napoleon Bunny Dame. <laughs> uh, so Aurelia Napoleon uh, apparently went by the nickname Bunny. Have, has anybody heard of this guy? He was actually pretty famous, apparently, in the 40s because he played for the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah. And then he went off, uh, he joined the military in the 40s. Um, he was uh, out of the hockey world. I don't know if he was in active like, service on the front lines or whatnot, but in the 40s he was in the military. Um, he came back around 1944 to Canada. And then after that, um, he, he didn't play in the NHL again. He went down to sort of lower leagues of hockey. Um, and it seemed like he moved to Calgary. So Aurelia Napoleon, Bunny Dame. There's a really cool family that's lived in your home. Yeah, really, for a long time, a lot longer than I would have initially suspected. Yeah, okay, so this is the closing of the circle. <laughs> so that photo of George Dame, the defense player, in 19, the 1920s, when I looked and saw that it was donated by this Beatrice McLeod, I was like, who is Beatrice? How did she end up with this photo of someone with this name, George Dame? So Beatrice was one of the kids, um, and she married, she took the name McLeod, and then after um, George and Louise had passed away, Beatrice moved into the house. So she's the one who donated that picture um, to the archives. Uh, th th this one, anybody's curious. Um, so yeah, you've had many generations, or not many generations, but many, many people from that one family living in this home. Yeah.
Um, unfortunately, like all the other things you were interested in, I couldn't find um, the blueprints, photos of the house, <laughs> building permits. I, I couldn't like find them. Back then, we yeah. don't know. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's odd that there's no building permit, um, but that's also on microfilm, so it's possible just more scrolling would have okay. taken me to it. I, I really tried as hard as I could, yeah. but couldn't seem to find one. Um, maybe they built it informally during the like World War One yeah. Spanish flu era, and okay. nobody thought to take out a permit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what thoughts, Nicole? No, it's just it's 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 kind of it feels good knowing that there was a family that enjoyed it for so many years and kind of makes it feel more special, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. You saved me a lot of work. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish I knew all the things like, about like when this edition was built or like um, uh, yeah, I, the cinder blocks and stuff. But yeah, I hope it fills your house with a little more life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's good. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for letting us use your. Oh, problem. Okay, act surprised this afternoon when I tell you okay, all the same yeah. things. <laughs> <laughs> when you take it all, I'll get it. <laughs> okay, uh, well, let's, let's head out, and uh, thanks, Nicole. Thank Round of applause for Nicole. We left Nicole's place and walked down the street under those big, leafy elm and ash trees that line all the streets in Ritchie and headed down to the Ritchie Community League Hall to wrap up the tour. So what, what we are not visiting, but what we are discussing uh, in terms of our last area is that industrial warehouse area in West Ritchie um, with lots of big machine shop type buildings. Uh, and Scott Harris, who uh, is doing some urgent house renovation and could not be here for this uh, part of the tour, unfortunately, um, asked, what is the background of the Quonset hut type rounded roof buildings with the squared off fronting. Um, so uh, does anybody have a sense of these type of buildings? Like shout out what buildings feel like that to you. Uh, okay, yeah, like near Yanni's would be yeah, one. Um, it's across from the Strathcona distillery. Across from Strathcona <laughs> distillery, that new gin distillery there? Yeah. Yep. Um, Southern Auto Body is another one that kind of. Yeah, yeah, right in that area. So happily, we have a plaque to start with on our research journey. Um, Narianni's, the building that is Narianni's now, was originally known as Arndt's Machine Shop. This building is on the Inventory of Historic Resources, um, which is basically a fancy list that the city has made of buildings that are old and have in interesting or important stories and might be worth keeping around. So there's a plaque on this building talking about um, this type of architecture and this time. Um, so this building, the machine shop, and uh, Southern Auto Body, right across the street, were both built in the 40s, post-World War II, and they represent kind of a boom time um, for the neighborhood. After World War II, um, and even during World War II, there's a lot of investment in the city. There's enough money flowing around um, to fund um, some businesses with fairly large buildings um, and what, from what I come to understand, this style of building is popular because you, it was partly prefab and it was kind of cheap to build. So these rounded roofs you could you could buy and then you could just say like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna I'll put that roof on the walls that I'll build in town. 
Um, and also they allowed for a gigantic amount of interior space. Um, so if you've been inside either of these places, they're like pretty much big open spaces and tend. Um, so that, that's kind of the reason why those buildings are popular. Um, one of the other buildings on uh, Scott's list of buildings that he was curious about was the Minchow blacksmith shop. So uh, this blacksmith shop uh, is in the news a lot these days and is also an industrial building, but it turns out it comes from uh, a different time and really a different era of building in that period. Relevant name for the blacksmith shop is Adolf Minchow. Um, he was the owner of that business originally. Um, so his uncle was the first member of the family to come to the Edmonton area. They came from that sort of vaguely German-speaking, but maybe in Poland, maybe in Ukraine, maybe in Russia, area of Europe. And uh, when his uncle had sort of gotten established and done pretty well for, for himself, um, his uncle actually bought some land uh, that was originally Papa's Chase land that was auctioned off at the Strathcona Hotel. When his uncle was pretty well established, he said to some of his family members back in Europe, hey, if you want to come to Edmonton and get in on this good deal, I'd be happy to sponsor you. Um, so Adolf Minchow, who was 18 years old at the time, said, heck yes, that's me. Uh, so he came all the way out uh, to Edmonton, and uh, this is where he met his wife, Bertha. They became part of the Lutheran church community here. If you're familiar with the Trinity Lutheran Church, um, they were part of that congregation, and apparently Bertha was quite active in the church community. And Adolf first worked for John Walter um, in one of his businesses here. If you are familiar with the Walterdale area, the Walterdale Bridge, that's that John Walter. He had a ton of businesses. Um, and then Adolf became a, a blacksmith. His family ran that business uh, throughout the 20th century. Um, when the dad retired, he gave the business to his sons, uh, Fred and Stan. They wound down the business in 1979. And uh, by this point, a lot had changed. They had gone from sort of the um, farming implement era to the let's make some machine parts uh, era of uh, Edmonton's development. And by this point, the door is gone. Um, does anybody know why? You might have read about this in the newspaper also recently. This is kind of neat. Um, the Provincial Museum, now the Royal Alberta Museum, acquired their door. They, uh, they, when they were auctioning off pieces of the old blacksmith shop, um, this door, I guess, was kind of an interesting story because it had been branded many times by the branding irons that they were making there. Um, so they kept the door and some of the tools. And then the, the building um, went on to be filled by some other businesses. And then the building today um, is in danger of demolition. Um, the current owner apparently is interested in tearing it down because the, this, the zoning for that area, for that building site, is really, really valuable. Um, from what I understand, back in the 80s when there was like not a lot going on in Ritchie and the city was trying to encourage development, they gave uh, zoning for up to 12 stories of residential and commercial on that site. And right now it's like a one and a half story little brick building. Um, so you can imagine that's pretty valuable. Um, and the way, my understanding of, of how the city or the province would save that building um, is that they would have, either of them would have to compensate the owner for the maximum potential value on the site. And also, uh, as far as I understand, um, the city of Edmonton has never forcefully designated a site as a municipal um, designated site 
against the owner's wishes before. Um, so it would be an unprecedented fight to designate um, that site. Uh, there are people organizing to try to keep it, um, to find other occupants for it. Apparently there are business owners already in, in Edmonton who want to fill that site with some business that would capture the blacksmith spirit, um, which is kind of neat. But uh, it's, it's hard to know what's going to happen. One councillor, Scott McKean, is uh, especially pushing hard uh, for this, the Edmonton Historical Board. Um, is somewhat involved in this discussion as well. Um, and there is a Save the Minchow Blacksmiths uh, Shop Facebook group, and there are family members who are actively part of this Facebook group trying to get people interested in the story. Yeah, their, their family's been along, around Edmonton for a long time. They've been a big part of the city's history. There's a neighborhood named after them. There's a school named after the, the family. Um, the, both Adolf and Bertha apparently were like fixtures of the German-speaking and Lutheran communities. Um, while they were around, um, and people even like came and stayed at their house, and yeah, so it would be a real shame if this building is torn down. But it's uh, I, I don't know. I, through this learning process, I thought it was kind of neat to learn that these buildings, which are pretty much on the same block, um, the Southern Auto Body Place and uh, the Blacksmith Shop, that they're they represent totally different eras of this neighborhood's development, um, and all those buildings help tell the story. So I hope. They can stay around for a long time to come. Chris, you were talking about the automotive bodies and the German heritage in this in this site. Yes. Um, so, walking around the, that industrial era, I just noticed that there are a lot of automotive businesses there, and I was curious why is that. Um, so, I talked to a bunch of the business owners, and the gist of what I got is that um, it was possible in that kind of economic slump era of Richie's lifespan um, to buy big enough chunks of land to put an automotive business on. And also, there was kind of a critical mass at some point of businesses supporting each other. So like th this area is heavily influenced by being near the end of the railway. Um, so there were lots of businesses that benefited from being adjacent to that. And that pro probably led to some of the like blacksmithy adjacent businesses. Um, and then as cars came up, I guess it's really beneficial to have um, a, an automotive like repair business or used car business where you're also within walking distance of upholstery or glass or radios and you don't have to drive somewhere to get it. And also, apparently this is a convenient area to have an automotive business in because it's really close to where people live and work and people don't want to travel really far to drop off their car to get repairs done. Good question. Uh, and then... Uh, <laughs> Um, about the German uh, history of the neighborhood too, uh, it's true. I, I was I was curious to know, like, okay, this this area is known for being um, a place where lots of German immigrants moved to. Um, so I was curious to know how German speaking is this neighborhood still. Um, so the 2014 census um, listed 52 households that still spoke German and Richie, but by 2016 that went down to 36. So less than two percent of households are German speaking in this neighborhood now. Um, which is kind of a shame. Um, I'm not sure what the reasons for that are. Maybe people are just, although they have German ancestry, they're speaking English more at home, or maybe people are moving out of the neighborhood, but I thought that was interesting to observe. Do you know what the comparative historical numbers are? I don't. Uh, I, tried, I, I, I looked as far as I could online for the census, and they don't seem to have recorded that information for any other censuses that they have online, and the online ones only go back to 2008. Okay. Yes. Good question. There, are, there will be others, uh, um, 
available. I just didn't have time to poke too deep into that. So like Oktoberfest at Ritchie, we'll put on a sample of the German food in the area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent questions. <laughs> okay, uh, well that does it for the walk. Thanks for coming, everybody. That does it for this episode of Let's Find Out. Thank you for listening and for coming along on the walk with us. Um, this episode was produced by Omar Salafu and me. Uh, I have a favor to ask. Our network, the Alberta Podcast Network, has a listener survey out. Um, if you could fill it out and tell people that you have come to listen to Let's Find Out live, that would be amazing um, just to show, hey, we got folks out there. Um, so go to albertapodcastnetwork.com um, and look for listener survey. It's only up this month, so jump. Uh, you can find past episodes of Let's Find Out on our website, letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our podcast if you enjoyed your experience today. We did a walk last year you can listen to. We've had lots of other fun live events. Um, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Overcast. And please leave us a review if you liked what you uh, heard today. Um, thank you to uh, Karen Wall... Um, Scott Harris and Nicole Anderson for giving us their questions today and also thanks to Sam Billings um, and uh, of course thank you to the archivists Kim Christie Millie, Tim O'Grady and uh, Mary Beth Plennert who helped out with the information research and uh, Marlena Wyman also helped she was the one who led that sketching event she says join the Urban Sketchers Facebook group if you want to come on sketch some history too um, this episode was also supported by the Edmonton Heritage Council and Edmonton Historical Board, and of course, the Ritchie Community League. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, our music was done by the tremendously lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Our logo is done by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. And until next time, keep your questions coming. This guy, uh, George, is also in the Gateway, actually. Oh, really? His um, varsity hockey records often showed up. Nice. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. It was another point of like confusion, like, who the hell is this other George? Why is he <laughs> in my way? <laughs> don't, don't name your kids after yourself. That's the real. <laughs>